Well, good morning, everyone. Really, really good to get to see everybody. Um, and that uh, song was, I think, a perfect lead into the uh, to the lesson this morning in uh, Acts chapter five. Um, just a little bit of a review for those of you who haven't been able to be a part of the series on um, Acts chapters three through seven. Um, We've been looking at the power of the gospel in the beginning of the movement of the church. Um, In chapter 5, we're still in Jerusalem, and that's really the contained section that we're going to be doing in this series. Um, In chapter 8 is where the Christians who were in Jerusalem, they scatter because of persecution. They begin preaching about Jesus to other cities around Jerusalem. Um, But for now, everything is still at its very beginning in Jerusalem. And this movement has started like a tidal wave. Um, For thousands of years, God from the beginning of time was working up to the moments of Acts chapter 2. He's finally fulfilled his intention not just to send Jesus into the world to have him be crucified and risen from the dead, but to send the Spirit and to fulfill this age-old promise that John, I think, brought up in the Lord's Supper, if I'm remembering right, I shall be their God and they shall be my people. And we're going to see in chapter 5 as well the importance that Although Jesus did come to save individuals, Jesus came to create a community, a group. And we're going to be reading more about the quality of that group. And we see the power of the gospel in understanding what this group looked like and being inspired to strive to become like these Christians, to be the same kind of people as what we see here. These are people that, to them... Everything that to us are matters of intangible faith that we're trying to understand and grasp and you know, trying to see Jesus for who he is as we see him in scripture. But what we're seeing here is what does it look like when people believe the gospel as tangibly as possible? What does it look like when people who knew, with, who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who saw him crucified, who were there, people who witnessed the resurrected Christ, what does it look like when people respond to the gospel in its reality. That's what we're seeing here at the beginning of the book of Acts. What do people look like when they respond to the gospel as a reality? So we're going to see this morning courageous certainty with what we see in Acts 5. And I do want to start this with a little bit of an illustration. So in our, in our culture, I think it's, it could be because I'm young that I think this is a modern term, but I think it is, the idea of a whistleblower. And it's not, it's not like... Um, somebody blowing like a physical whistle. It's the idea of somebody revealing usually secret, hidden information about somebody in great power or somebody in a very high position or some very wealthy organization. And what they're doing is they're revealing information that shows fraudulent activity, illegal activity. Um, It's revealing deception and lies to really bring justice to people who have so much power that if this wasn't revealed, they would retain power by illegal or fraudulent activity. And whistleblowers tend to become pretty famous. There's politicians who have been brought down by whistleblowers. There's multi-billion dollar organizations that were growing in profit by extraordinary leaps and bounds that when somebody finally revealed some hidden information about how they were getting all this money, they were brought down and had to file for bankruptcy and people end up going into jail and suffering severe consequences. But why are people willing to stand against these great powers, whether it be politicians or people with 
unfathomable amounts of money and oftentimes with you know, so much legal means on their side to defend themselves even though they're wrong. It's two things. They, they're certain because they have the evidence to prove that something illegal or fraudulent is being done and that because of this there needs to be justice. But in understanding that people are being oppressed and taken advantage of, in verse uh, 31 of Acts 5, there's a word there that has, it's one of these words that's helpful when the Greek meaning um, is defined. Um, there's more layer to the word that, that can be found. Jesus is called Prince and Savior. That word Prince is only used four times in the Bible. And it's used in Hebrews chapter 12 when it describes Jesus as the author of which is the same Greek word translated author, the author and finisher of our faith. It literally means a chief leader furnishing the first cause, providing the first cause, thus affording an example to be followed. So it's not just that Jesus has a position, but that he is a chief leader giving us the first example of his cause so that we can then follow in his example. Usually a whistleblower, once they have solid evidence and they're willing to step forward, other people tend to join them and say, hey, you know what, I actually have information too, especially when it's revealed that they have protection to speak the truth. Jesus revealed that God will protect and give refuge to anyone who's willing to follow the truth. And what we see in the book of Acts here is people who are willing to have great courage because of their certainty in Jesus because of their certainty in his cause and their certainty that God provides them refuge as they follow that cause. So let's start with looking at verses 17 through 32 again, where the chief priests again arrest not just Peter and John. So in chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested. They healed the lame man. They were preaching a sermon as a result. The council, the leadership arrested them. But that was just Peter and John. Here we see it's all of the apostles who are arrested. So let's read this. 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Remember, it was multitudes, thousands who were obeying the gospel in Jerusalem at this point. Verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel. And they sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching 
and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So what happens when they're arrested this time? In chapter 4, there wasn't necessarily anything seemingly, seemingly miraculous. Um, they perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, warned them to stop, which again we talked about was kind of like uh, a legal warning. You know, we're giving you your first warning. If you keep going, we're going to have to take greater punishment and take greater means against you. What happens this time? Well, in verse 19 and 20, during the night an angel of the Lord appears, opens the prison, and once again tells them to, to do the very thing that got them into trouble in the first place, which we see in verse 21, they're more than willing to continue to do. If you remember at the end of chapter 4, we talked about their prayer for greater boldness. Instead of complaining about the abuse and the injustice of the leadership after they were arrested the first time, they pray for more of the thing that got them into trouble in the first place. And again, we see here that there's no fear they have of the consequences of what's going to happen. They just continue teaching. And so I like how the angel tells them something about the message, that it's the whole message of this life, right? That what the apostles are carrying is a teaching that encapsulates the meaning of life itself. You know, that Christianity, our faith, is not just meant to be this hobby that we have as an aside to everything else going on in our lives. This is a very holistic message. And I think we see this with the way that Peter, again, teaches them at the end of this section. This is a holistic message. This is meant to be the center of our existence by which everything else gravitates around. That Jesus becomes the all-consuming, conquering force of our life. And so, kind of as a side note, there's some doctrinal things in the book of Acts that I think are helpful to notice when we come across them. In the book of Acts, did the angel here teach anything to the people? And there's times in the book of Acts where we'll either see the Holy Spirit speak directly either to the apostles or others, and angels will speak directly to people and interact with people, but angels never teach anything. They might aid teaching and create opportunities for teaching. So, for instance, later, Peter will once again be in prison and an angel of the Lord will once again release him. But the angels aren't doing the teaching, they're creating opportunities for the teaching. Why is this important? There are some religions, like the Mormon religion, that teach an angel appeared to someone and taught this entire new message. But in the New Testament, we never see that pattern. What we see is angels and the Spirit may create opportunities, but it is always people who are doing the teaching in the book of Acts. We see that very consistently. So just worth taking note of that. So they know that something strange has happened. Obviously, in verse 26, they're very perplexed that they hear that the people that they put quite securely in prison are preaching the people in the temple. And mind you, when they inspected the jail, what was its condition? In verse 23, it was locked quite securely, and even the guards were still standing outside. So you imagine as they have it opened up, the guards are there, they step aside, 
and nobody's inside. And you imagine them being questioned, okay, how did they escape? And there's just, there's nothing they can say, right? You know what's interesting? In verse 28, do they ask how they were released or what happened? kind of seems like at this point they understand, okay, the apostles, just basically miraculous things are constantly happening with the apostles. No need to question that anymore, right? But the ironic thing, their accusation is actually an accusation against themselves, the council. And mind you, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This council, these are the same people who put Jesus on trial, who stirred up false witnesses. And when you read Matthew 26, when Jesus was standing in front of these same people, they spit on him, they blindfolded him, they punched him, they slapped him in the face, and then they brought him to Pilate. And when he was before Pilate, eventually Pilate seeing his innocence, Matthew 27, verse 24, Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Do you remember what they said in reply? They said, his blood be upon us and on our children. Verse 28, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Isn't that what they asked for? But what we see here, again, how this is an accusation against themselves, what's really going on here? What's really going on? They just don't want to face the consequences of what they've done. Just want to move on with life. You know, yeah, Jesus died. He was crucified. They were a part of it. But they just don't want to deal with the consequences of what they've done. And they asked for it, right? Now, and I think the way that the apostles reply again shows a complete lack of malice and impatience because you could think, all of this in mind, the frustration. Like, do you, got, do you guys not see the insanity of all of this? How, how twisted this is? Or how can you guys be so far from understanding justice as priests and the high priest, the high priest, of the Jewish nation, the one most responsible for interceding for the nation is leading the way against Christ and his apostles. But what we see is calm boldness. We must obey God rather than men. That word must, by the way, when Jesus would use that word, it wasn't an invitation for permission. So Jesus would say, we must go to Jerusalem. What he wasn't saying is, well, if you'll go with me, we'll go to Jerusalem he was saying, no, with or without you, that's where I'm needing to go. And so the apostles aren't saying, we must do this, and we're inviting you to give us permission. No, he's saying, whether or not we have to suffer consequences, or you give us permission, or you understand, none of that really matters. And so again, they failed their homework, because back in chapter 4, they asked, whether or not it's better to obey you rather than God, you be the judge. And because they hadn't thought about it, now it's simply in the form of a statement. But in verse 30 through 32, they again just give them the facts. That Jesus died, they had crucified him. The God of their fathers has raised him up. And verse 31, God exalted him to be prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There's no malice in that message. And I think it shows as well in the, in the terms of it being a holistic message were the apostles teaching a moral message? And that might sound weird, but I want you to think about this. I think it can be easy sometimes to think that what the gospel is, is we're trying to convert immoral people to become moral, right? 
So if you're guilty of lying and you're a habitual liar or a drunkard or sexually immoral, well, the gospel, you need to confess that specific practice and you need to fix that and become moral, right? I want to argue that this goes exceedingly beyond that. That because Jesus died, this isn't just about an adjustment of behavior, but this is a replacement of spirit, heart, mind. It is holistic. And so the problem was not just that they were liars about Jesus and had unjustly accused him. The problem was Jesus was dead, buried and crucified. And he had risen from the dead to be exalted at the right hand of God. That was something much more all-encompassing than just the fact that they had lied when Jesus was on trial. And the last thing that Peter says, I think, is worth noting. He says, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Was Peter arguing for something intangible? Was he saying, take my word for it. We have the Holy Spirit because we've obeyed him. Or was he arguing something that they could see very tangibly? The Holy Spirit was evident in the community that had been created. That everything that their law had said they ought to be was being very proactively, very visibly fulfilled. The miracles that were taking place that were happening with the apostles and those they laid hands on, it was obvious, not just in Jesus' death and resurrection, but it was obvious within the community and in the apostles that the Holy Spirit had been given now to those who obeyed him. And that itself was a witness to the fact that these people were heralding the truth. So then we get verses 33 through 39, which is one of my favorite sections of the book of Acts. We get this man, Gamaliel. So I realize I've talked to people about this. I say his name wrong. I usually say Gamaliel. I want to say Gamaliel because I think that's actually correct. So if I go back and forth, just try not to be distracted. Um, I have some trouble with some of these names. So Gamaliel and his counsel in verse 33 through 39. And what I'd like to focus on is what we see in Gamaliel's counsel is we don't see honesty, but we see a cowardice that holds this counsel in their deception. So verse 33 through 39. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, Stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So Gamaliel, Gamaliel intervenes, and in verse 40, the council did listen. And if you notice in verse 33, The council was convicted to the point where they wanted to kill the apostles right then and there. And by the way, when it says they were cut to the quick, that is eerily similar to what we see in Acts chapter 2 after Peter's sermon. They were cut to the heart. 
And I think we see two opposite reactions, right? So in Acts 2, those who were cut to the heart humbled themselves. In Acts 5, they were cut to the heart and they rebelled. But for it to be the same reaction in verse 33, why were they cut to the heart in Acts chapter 2? Why? Was it because it was all just a bunch of nonsense and, you know, maybe we should do something with this nonsense? No, it was because they were confronted with a reality they could not ignore their involvement in. And so I think in verse 33, what you're seeing is, again, the truth of the matter, that they're being confronted with a reality that they can't ignore unless these men are put to the, de- put to the death. If it weren't for, for Gamaliel's counsel, which gives them a seemingly passive way out of this. So did he give good advice? Um, either he did or he didn't. And sometimes I've heard a case made that Gamaliel actually gave very good advice. I'll tell you ahead of time. I think he gives horrible advice that reflects a hardness of heart that God used for good purposes. Um, obviously, the apostles are not put to death here, so this was used for great good. But what do you think about this? Did he acknowledge anything the apostles literally just said to him directly? Does he say anything about Jesus? Anything about the resurrection? Anything about the church or the miracles they've witnessed? What about Acts chapter 4, where the lame man was standing right there with the apostles and they had nothing to say about it? What about that? Gamaliel doesn't say anything about the teaching that's been consistently proclaimed. And again, this was said to him directly, and he says nothing about it. And so really, he's building a straw man in verse 36 and 37, and then he's pushing down the straw man. But if you know about logic and logical classes, the idea of a straw man is you're building a fake opponent who is very fragile and weak and can be easily overpowered, which isn't the real argument. And you're able to just push it over very easily. But it's called straw man because in logic, you're not actually dealing with the truth, but you feel satisfied because, well, you've dealt with something, right? So he doesn't actually acknowledge what the apostle said at all, not even slightly. And does he deal with the things that had been happening with Jesus? What about the life of Jesus? What about the miracles Jesus had performed? What about Peter saying they crucified Jesus? What about the claim that he had risen from the dead? Does he deal with any of that or make any arguments about any of that? He doesn't. And again, what about the apostles and their miracles? Any argument? And so I want you to think, is this a fair comparison he makes with, with Theudas and Judas? Is this a fair comparison that he's making? And before we get more into this, remember Acts 4.13, and I've, I've mentioned this already. They observed that Peter and John were what again? Uneducated, untrained men. Who is Gamaliel? A teacher of the law, respected by all the people. Paul the apostle to the Jews would later say, hey, I'm a Pharisee raised at the feet of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is even written about in history. This was one of the last famous, highly regarded Jewish rabbis, one of the last ones. And so, ironically, maybe not ironically, from what I understand about history, Gamaliel never believed in Jesus and actually became seemingly an opponent of Christianity later after all this had happened, right? So I think there's an irony that Peter and John, who they were like, these are uneducated, untrained men, they seem very informed about the law, 
what the law meant, how it relates to the current events of their time. And here you have a teacher of the law, one of the most famous rabbis of the time, and it seems like he knows nothing. It's like he's completely out of touch with the simplest realities of what's right in front of him. So did he make a fair comparison with Thutis, this random rebel rouser who gets 400 people to follow him? Is that really fair, comparing that to what Jesus did with his apostles? Or how about Judas of Galilee, who just drew away some people after him? Again, is is this a fair comparison? I just want to take a moment to make a side point here. We need to be really aware of unfair comparisons that people generally make. Because it's an easy way to, again, feel justified to be very passive about the truth. And I don't need to make a decision about that because it's ridiculous. People say things like, and, and I run into this all the time, and you probably do too, every religion's basically the same, right? I mean, every religion is basically telling you, love one another, be kind, do good, right? And so really, Christianity isn't all that different from all these other religions. Is that a fair comparison? Just like Gamaliel, Gamaliel, that's a comparison from someone unwilling to investigate because they may be very afraid of what they find if they investigate too far. And I want to argue that Gamaliel and his ignorance is not just a, well, you know, somehow he's managed to not be exposed. No, 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 no. This is a very willful ignorance here of someone who does not want to investigate the truth of what's happening. So just be aware that at times people will make these unfair comparisons. And I think, again, with this idea of courageous certainty, the more we invest in the kingdom and really begin to step into what God has accomplished, not just in the Bible as a book, which is itself impossibly amazing, but when we begin to realize what, has, what God has done in history, I think more and more we become more amazed with the impossibility that this could have been worked out by man. So there's, there's such a uniqueness to the truth that I think we need to be rooted in. And does the longevity, so his, his last argument is like, well, you know, if this isn't of God, it'll last, and if it's not of God, it'll go away. Is that really true? Are there religions that are false that last thousands of years, even though they're not true? I mean, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, um, the Muslim religion. I mean, there's, there's a lot of religions that they seem pretty clearly not grounded in any evidence, at least, and yet they're perpetuated through time. So the idea that, well, this is true if it lasts, I just don't really know if that's a solid basis for something being of God, right? So I don't think even his strongest argument, seemingly, is even fair itself. The way I can give this just a little bit of credit is maybe he means in the Jewish religion specifically. But then you run into the problem, what about the Sadducees? Do you remember they denied the resurrection? They denied angels? They denied even the existence of anything spiritual? They seem like they had been around for a while. And so again, I just every angle you go is like, well... I'm not sure if that makes sense on a lot of different levels, right? And so again, is Gamaliel giving solid advice? I don't know. I just don't think so. So why do you think about this too? Verse 33 is one of the most important points in this council's interactions with the apostles. One of the most important points. Did his argument 
strengthen that conviction or destroy it? I want to argue that Gamaliel's clever counsel just gave them a clever way of escaping accountability. Like, oh, we can continue to be passive about this. Right, let's do that. All he does for the council, again, God uses this for good. I think this is very good that God uses this to allow the apostles to live and keep going. But as far as the council is concerned, what they needed is to preserve that conviction from verse 33 and not escape that conviction. So was his counsel good advice, just even based on what it did to their hearts? Absolutely not. And I want you to think about the longevity of listening to this advice. Did the Jews, the leadership, remain passive against Christianity in this time frame? Did they remain passive? Maybe for like a week? So like even by Gamaliel's own advice, again, even historically it seems Gamaliel became against Christianity You know, even his own advice wasn't followed for very long anyway. But what do we see with the Christians? We ultimately see that because of their confidence and their certainty in Jesus, they are willing to suffer courageously for the cause of Christ as their prince and savior. Let's read 40 through 42. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't this shocking? I just feel like this is a section where you almost need to pause and just let it sink in how inspiring this is that this is how they respond to this, right? Um, They're ordered to stop speaking after being beaten. And I imagine this wasn't, you know, just some small light beating, that this was something to draw blood and leave an impression, like, hey, we, we really mean it. Cut it out. And so you imagine them, skin ripped open, blood running down their, running down their sides. And as they leave the presence of the council, they begin rejoicing together. How incredible is that? How inspiring should that be? In chapter 4, it ends with them praying together for boldness. And here we see them rejoicing together because of the result of that prayer. And I think it's easy after chapter 4 to forget that they had prayed for more boldness. And I think this is exactly the result of that prayer, that God had answered that prayer. He had filled them with greater boldness. And that boldness was not just in the act of preaching and speaking. It was in the way that they saw Jesus. And that the way that they saw Jesus within their hearts, within their minds, their comprehension, was growing. And their courage to be jealous for that cause was also growing. Think about the importance of community in this. We'll talk a little bit more about Peter. But what happened to Peter when he didn't know what was going on and was alone compared to now when they know exactly what's going on and they're not alone. How important is our community together to suffer and rejoice for it? And their joy demonstrated that Jesus was not just an example. He wasn't just a philosophy to them. Again, like has been brought up before, this wasn't just 
new, better information, not just improved religion. This was something radical that was rooted in the person and the work of the person, Jesus Christ. This shows that Jesus had become their hero, not just their example. I looked up a definition of hero, and it's a person who is admired or idealized for courage, for outstanding achievements or noble qualities. So just as an illustration of this, this maybe or may not be helpful, but when I was like four years old, um, for Halloween one year, my mom got my brother and I Batman and Robin costumes. And my brother was older, so by nature, he got to be Batman and I was Robin. Um, But after that Halloween, I would literally wear that costume like as regular clothing all the time i was robin all the time and sometimes i would sneak in and put on the batman costume too and i would wear those costumes even when i had like far outgrown them and was like ripping them so you have like (laughs) this little six-year-old wearing like a tight robin costume because the idea of like bearing the image of a hero to a child is amazing you know and a lot of you with kids like I don't know, Paw Patrol or that one with like the gecko and like the flying owl girl, right? Like children just, they love the idea of bearing the image of a hero or someone that they perceive to be very heroic. And I remember when I was really young as well, my dad, I was sitting next to him at one point, his like, the side of his thumb was all tore up and it looked like it had like blood. And I started like cutting at my finger because I admired my dad so much I was like, I want to look like him. I want to bear his image. So even if he has this little mark on his thumb, I want to cut into my thumb until I look exactly like him, right? That's what the apostles saw in Jesus. Did they rejoice because they were beaten? I want you to notice what it says in verse 41. They rejoiced because they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. What made Jesus a hero to these men? that Jesus is God Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords, conqueror who has all power and authority, and yet what did he do with it? Not only did he let that authority go, but he took the form of a bondservant to be obedient even to death on a cross. Jesus suffered shame so that these men could be redeemed. And to get to bear that image to these men, was a great joy. And so their joy again demonstrates Jesus was not just an example. He was their hero. And their joy demonstrates the power of the cross. Again, think about how things had changed for Peter. You know, I don't doubt that before Jesus was crucified, when Peter said, I'm willing to die with you, and he whipped out his sword, cut servant of the high priest right here off. I don't doubt that in that moment, He was willing to die in a great blaze of glory. But that wasn't how it was going to happen, was it? And I think as Peter was confused and alone, he didn't understand what Jesus was really standing for, what he was really doing. That at this point, everything is different. Now it all makes sense. And Peter is no longer having to stand alone, but now he has other men and women who are a part of this group of people who are courageously standing for a cause greater than themselves, greater than the Jewish nation, greater than the council that had just beaten them. And what that does is it points to the power of the cross. Because how did this change so radically? How did Peter change so radically? 
Jesus had been crucified and risen from that condition to rule forever, eternity. And so it's ultimately because of how they saw Jesus. And how they saw Jesus changed how they saw their circumstances, and it changed their resolve to continue teaching. And so the resolve to spread the message was absolute, and it was unshakable. In verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You know, I think we all struggle in our own personal ways with having courage for the gospel. And I think we have to be careful that when we read examples like this, that it's not so intimidating like, you know, ah, I feel like I've got to be exactly like this right now, and because I'm not, you don't even want to think about it. Let's start with just being inspired and just being encouraged that this is what they did because of what God can do through a faith that is truly seeking him. And let's think about how equipped we are that what Jesus gave to these men in their community is what Jesus gives us for our community as well. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, and this is where we'll end the lesson. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 27 through 30. <clears throat> Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. What are we doing here today? Why do we meet every week? Like John brought up at the Lord's Supper What's that supposed to do to our lives every week as we remember how Jesus stood for God's cause and died for it so that we could be redeemed? How should that be changing our view of Jesus every week, changing our view of our lives and of each other? Verse 27, everything that we do is to equip us to strive together with one heart and one mind for the sake of the gospel. And depending on how we view Jesus, whether we just see it as information that we want to believe or whether Jesus is truly our hero, will determine how we receive the news is what they heard in Philippi, which was a very ungodly city by all appearances that we see about it, that, hey, I've got a gift for you, a present, that it's been granted to you so graciously that you get to suffer for the name of Christ and you get to experience that same conflict which you've seen and hear to be in me. May God help us to see Jesus as our hero. Let's roll into the lesson today. If there's anything we can do for you uh, this morning, now's a proper time as we stand and sing the invitation song. <clears throat>